0: Hello, Andrew Weaver here, your host on Salmon Swim Upstream. I got to tell you, it's a great title. Not easy to say, particularly early in the morning. But here we are. We've made it to episode two Salmon Swim Upstream, which is the podcast for people seeking just that little extra adventurous challenge in their lives. And do you know what? Podcast one stimulated some correspondence. We got mail. We got mail. Chris Milliner. God bless you, Chris Milliner lifelong supporter of the podcast, based down in the gorgeous English county of Devon, where all things are rosy, but he clearly needs to plug into a little adventure on his regular drive up to London. Here, he, and I quote, Hey guys, great first podcast. Love the Luke adventure. Can't wait for the next one to help me through my next long car journey. Well, gotta say, it's fair to say that Chris is a chum of old. We shared many great moments together. But perhaps the greatest was a cricket partnership, my greatest cricket partnership with Mr. Milner on the hallowed fields of the Cranfield School of Management. Oh, the memories, the memories of Cranfield. Also, I know that Chris himself, something of an adventurous type, this guy actually telemarks for fun. Now, if you haven't seen telemarking or tried it, <laughs> that's quite something. That's the kind of guy he is. But anyhow, Thanks for the encouragement, Chris, and I hope you enjoy podcast two, and it eases just a little bit of that A303 into London. I tell you what, I'm pretty good at these lister links. I reckon I could comfortably host one of those cheesy daytime shows on radio too, if anyone at the BBC happens to be listening, um, which clearly they're not getting ahead of myself. It's just me and Chris. So a little housekeeping before we start, and of course... Salmon swim upstream, and I really do challenge you to say that quickly and smoothly. Something of an achievement for me already on this podcast too. Uh, salmon swim upstream is brought to you by Wildbase, but like most good things, we have had to wait a little longer than planned for the launch of the full-fat Wildbase website. We just had the small issues of Jack Gross arriving into the world, so congrats to my co-founder Luke and new mum Claire on that news. And my other half decided to move me from London to Madrid, which I have to say is not tortuous as I look out across beautiful blue skies. But I can announce that Wildbase will be launching very soon. The date today as I speak is the 31st of July, 2019. So, dear listener, if you're waiting with bated breath for the Wild Base magic to unfurl, it's about to happen. Of course, if you've arrived here from the future, ignore everything I've just said and head straight for wildbase.co to find your next big challenge. Without further ado, today's edition of Salmon Swim Upstream.
1: incredibly emotional I hadn't succeeded at something my competitive edge from when I was younger throughout all my sports and um, it hadn't run true um, and I was turning my back on something that had been a huge part of my life for six months and in my mind at the time I'd I, you know I'd failed I, I referred to the, the, the charitable causes that we were doing this for and it, it made me pretty emotional
0: That is the voice of Joe Bars, MCC cricketer, land sail, adventurer, very fine chap, and the latest guest to join us here on our increasingly mighty podcast. Now as a kid, I had the great pleasure and enormous distraction, at least from my school studies, to the chagrin of my parents. I'm living in North Cornwall and very close to a range of fantastic beaches, for those of you who might be listening. Outside the UK, Cornwall is right down in the southwest, far southwest of England, surrounded by ocean. North coast of Cornwall, fantastic. Comes the Atlantic, comes in. It's fantastic for surfing. Fistral Beach uh, in Newquay is perhaps the most famous. Certainly, they host world championship events there. But the one that I frequented more was called Watergate Bay, which is just to the north. These places are famous for their surfing but also a venue that was in those days, and I regret to say those days, folks, we're talking 1980s. I know it's hard to believe that your gâteau de birth of a podcast host is that old, but alas, my Tinder profile might lie, but my passport doesn't. It was a venue alongside surfing for some serious hot rod land sailing. Now, if you're unfamiliar with land sailing, sand yachting, I'm told it's also called dirt boating, but I've not particularly heard that. Phrase before. Um, it's essentially what it says on the tin. It's sail, wind, land, and bloody fast. I mean, these things really motor, they go three to four times faster than the wind speed. And I've got to tell you, my brief experiment with land sailing did not end well. Some of my lower vertebrae still chunter at the memory of that unhappy experience. But no such fears for today's guest, who decided to take up a, a slightly different version, a wike, which is a combination of land sail and bicycle bicycling on, on a, I say loosely, a small jaunt through South America. You can forget Watergate Bay and your journey from Rockpool to what Rockpool. We're talking here, Tierra del Fuego, to Santiago. Oh, and I forgot to mention, they threw in a very small, very interesting detour. So Joe, welcome to our little podcast here at Wildbase. Hi,
1: Andrew. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, it's very kind of you. Now, to our listener, an apology immediately. I don't like to start things off with an apology, but uh, I've been stuck into a the tiniest booth you can imagine here at uh, we work in Madrid. And it's extremely echoey, not a, not a great sound quality, whereas Joe, I think, is coming through more clearly. So apologies in advance for the quality, at least of my audio. Um, Joe, the audience have already got a little sense of who you are, but I'm going to ask you a question just before we go on to this journey of yours. Was there some adventure DNA in your in your young life? Was there an adventure hero you had?
1: It's funny. I don't actually think there there is uh, much uh, adventure in my DNA when I was younger. I grew up sort of hearing from my dad about the great sort of polar explorers Scott, Shackleton, Amundsen, and then obviously Everest with Hillary and Norie. But For me, my sole focus when I was younger was sports. I was completely obsessed with sport, cricket being the main sport, and I didn't have much time for anything else uh, adventure-wise. This has grown increasingly embarrassing as I've got older, but I think my main sporting hero when I was younger was probably Shane Warne, a huge cricket fan. I once saw a, a quote from Shane Warne that completely captured my imagination, which was never give up, just absolutely never give up and uh, and that sort of captured my childhood really and so it wasn't until what what we're about to move on to during this podcast that adventure captured my imagination I don't think.
0: Well we're, we're going to try and ask that question regularly to guests as we move forward with this podcast but I suspect Shane Warne may be an unusual selection uh, for, for, <laughs> few, for future guests on the, on the podcast. So so, and I know that actually funnily enough there's a link with uh, a recent trip back to Chile isn't there with the cricket as well Yes, yeah. Yeah, there is. Yeah. it's quite interesting. So listen, give us give us an idea of, of, of how this all started. What was the gestation of this project that you got involved in?
1: So it goes goes back to uh, university. I was at the University of Exeter um, where I was, I was there for four years for an undergrad and postgraduate degree. And it just so happened that when I stayed on to do my master's degree there, a, a, a couple of very good friends of mine who were doing four year sandwich courses with a year abroad in their third year were also returning for their fourth year and and one of those good friends was gareth davies and we'd been inspired by a friendship group at university all who'd gone out adventuring in, in years between school and university and during their summer holidays at university and we wanted to do something ourselves um and as opposed, to, as opposed to Luke's round, round the, the pub table discussion, round the coffee table for Gareth and I, we set about sort of mapping out what our, what our challenge would, would like, what we would want that to look like. Um, but the main focal point at the, at the start was it being a charitable expedition. We wanted to raise money for two causes that were pretty close to our hearts. So that was the starting point, really.
0: So that was the starting point of doing something. What about the actual idea, the actual
1: trip that you ended up going on? So we fell into the idea, a friend of Gareth's um, at you know, the University of Exeter um, had recently uh, started working for a, a Dutch startup uh, called Wike, um, who produced the tricycles, the recumbent tricycles that have sails on top great for getting around uh, the Netherlands, which is a notoriously flat country and also quite windy. Um, they're designed as a as a sort of coastal beach buggy, if you like. You might have seen a similar contraption at the beach, um, at a windy beach. And he got talking to this, this contact called Ned through the Innovation Hub at Exeter. And uh, Gareth, having done his year abroad in Santiago, or split between Barcelona and Santiago in Chile, having studied Spanish, was asked to support logistically a separate adventure uh, on these uh, recumbent tricycles called Wikes um, across the Atacama Desert in Chile. Uh, He had the logistical knowledge on the ground of having spent time in Santiago and was able to help with also local language as well in setting up this this separate adventure. And and this adventure was designed to get Wike on the map, really, as a a brand. And Gareth asked the question to Ned um, when the adventure's done what's going to happen to the wikes? Um, And they'd said, well, we're not going to bother flying these wikes back to the UK. They will, they will stay in Santiago. And that is, that was, that was the brainwave. That's how it all started.
0: I love it. So you've got two redundant wikes sitting in a, in a South American city. Uh, And these two extra university pals decided they're going to do something with them.
1: Exactly. And that, and that was it. Um, uh, We knew then that we had our, we had our contraption uh, that we were going to use for our adventure. We then just, needed to decide what our route was going to be um, and how challenging we were going to make it for ourselves and how did that how did that itself
0: which, which uh, one of you was which one of you was driving the, uh, the...
1: I'll 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 be honest Gareth Gareth was driving <laughs> at this point he, he his knowledge of of South America was far uh, far greater than mine and he'd done a, a bit of exploring in Patagonia and sort of that cone of of Chile and Argentina um, and wanted to explore it further And the way he described this part of the the continent to me um, sort of took my imagination. Um, And so we set about planning a route that went from the southernmost point in South South America, Ushuaia, um, which is where they run a lot of Antarctic expeditions from, just to give you um, an idea of how far south it is. I think it's the southernmost point in the world um, without being on Antarctica. and then we mapped our route from Ushuaia back up to Santiago, um, capital of Chile, which we decided we wanted as our finishing point because that was where Gareth, again, had, had uh, a lot of points of contact from, from his year abroad. Um, yep. And so we saw it as a, as a fitting place to finish our expedition.
0: Cool. And had you got any concept that it was
1: two and a half thousand miles between A and B? I don't think I really thought about that. I'm not <laughs> sure I really thought about that until we'd finished, to be
0: honest. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh,
1: yeah, nah. No, no no concept for that at all, I don't think. It's a long way to the top if you want to rock and
0: roll. It's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll. Okay, Joe, so you've you've agreed because he's your mate to do two and a half thousand miles on what's known as a wipe, which is generally just used to go a hundred meters on a Netherlands beach. Um, probably not, but that's kind of the extremes we're talking about here. So what was the preparation? What was required in terms of preparation for yourself, preparation in terms of getting money? How did it all kind of fall into place?
1: Yeah, so if I'll, I'll start with preparing myself firstly. Having, as I, as I mentioned, throughout my childhood, my focus was sports. Uh, there was no endurance sport in there at all. It was all team, team-based sports. And so naturally, a, a recumbent tricycle feels like you're sitting in a go-kart. There are natural comparisons to cycling. So a lot of the training and preparing myself physically was cycling-based. Gareth was born and bred in Scotland, in Perthshire. And I grew up in sort of North Essex uh, towards Cambridge. And um we devised a bit of a training ride uh, that we were gonna to help to build some momentum for the trip uh from Gareth's house in Perthshire um to my house in Essex, which is about four hundred miles of cycling that we were hoping to do in about four days. And um, so sort of throwing myself in at the deep end, really having not done a crater of cycling prior to that. And and that just sort of got the measure of ourselves really. For how, four, how,
0: far in, how far in advance of the event? Of the actual trip
1: was it it's a good question so we did uh, we did the training ride in november and we were due to go out uh, to south america at the start of january okay um, okay 20, 2015 that was yeah so
0: yeah and, and and how did the how did the train how did that 400 miles feel did you did you end up thinking this is a doddle or uh,
1: no <laughs> Quite the opposite. It ended, it, 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 the, the, the last day of that trip was largely shadowing the A1 um, down towards Peterborough and then from Peterborough into, Cam- into into Cambridge. It was pretty bleak at the time. I, I couldn't really get my head around doing that that type of cycling over a much longer period of time than the four days that we just done. So, yeah, training ride, it certainly helped to train me to some extent. Uh, mentally I was probably in a worse state at the back end of those four days and, it was yeah.
0: and so how do you manage that I mean, you're, you're two months short of this trip and uh, you got sponsorship how, how did you fund what was the background to yeah. the financial elements of it
1: I, I, th- I think that was the, that was the distraction that was the part that I could still get excited about for the trip so I could forget less about the physicality of it because we had so much to do You know, as I mentioned this was a charitable expedition uh, for charities very close to mine and Gareth hearts. And which, which were those, I think? What were the two charities? charities? Gareth's charity was the foundation for Prada-Willi research. Um, yeah. And he had a, a very close family friend whose young child was affected by Prada-Willi syndrome. Yeah.
0: Um, I've got a brother
1: affected by that, actually. Have you really? Yeah,
0: yeah. So I know it very well. That's interesting. Yeah,
1: go on. Yeah. Um, and then my uh, charity was the Anderson Foundation, which was a foundation that my dad set up in memory of my mum, who passed away seven, seven years ago now. And uh, that charity is designed, to, uh, my mum was a, a languages teacher. The charity was designed to uh, support young children from secondary school through the way through to university to go and uh, study abroad. and um, or- of their French language and, and, and work experience in, in France. So. Well,
0: well, I was going to ask you about mindset because I think I think one of the kind of recurring themes about any of these adventures and challenges is you know the mental side of it is probably as challenging as any. But I guess that that personal motivation, that background, kind of answers that question in a sense. But were was there an element psychologically you had to negotiate in terms of actually taking that flight and going and doing it?
1: Yeah. I think think one of the messages that hopefully will reverberate throughout this podcast is, you know, anything's possible really when you've got a great enough purpose um, to want to do it. And I had a really, I had a purpose, you know, that was very close to me. And so, yeah, there was never any, going going back to the physicality of that training ride, there were never any doubts in my mind as to whether I was going to do this or not. Um, It felt as though it was something I was always, always going to do. You, me, or nobody, is gonna hit as hard as life. But it ain't about how hard you hit; it's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take
0: and keep moving forward. Okay, so you've um, where? What's the what's the journey? Where have you flown into for your start
1: line? So we flew into flew into Santiago. I think we went via Atlanta from the States into Santiago. Uh, we had a few days prep time in Santiago. And um, we just had to sort of yeah, get prepared, make sure we had everything we needed to get started. And then we flew down from Santiago to Punta Arenas, right in the, in that southern cone, That's the tip. Sort of the start of Patagonia, really, and then uh, in Punta Arenas, actually, our some some troubles began for us because uh, whilst we we're able to fly our wikes down from Santiago to Punta Arenas, you couldn't then fly any further south of Punta Arenas, and we there was probably about five five hundred miles to go to Ushuaia, the start point, and battled with local coach companies to try and get our wikes on the coach and. Uh, messed around for a number of days trying to get um, our, uh, ourselves, our bikes, and, and all of our stuff down to a Shire. And this probably h- highlights sort of how amateur the whole expedition was at the very start in a way, and, and sort of our own ignorance. But in a way, I'm so happy we had this starting point. That's how we, we, we learned so much in those early days and have taken a lot on from it as well. But we couldn't get our bikes uh, transported down our bikes transported down to Ushuaia, so we ended up cycling down to Ushuaia from uh, from Punta Arenas, which took um, about six days. We were able to hitchhike some of the way on one of the days, which which took out a good chunk of our of our journey. But yeah, we probably had roughly four to five days cycling uh, before we'd even before we'd even started. Ushuaia. Wow. Oh, my goodness.
0: Right. So that's so you're on the start line. How do you set yourself a target in terms of time
1: for these two and a half thousand miles? Yes, we wanted to. uh, We initially set ourselves a target of about 26 days um, to cover the two two, and a half thousand miles. Having done all of this work then prior to the start line, um, there was already a question mark over our ability to do that we'd took to sponsors prior to the trip beginning we sort of sold the trip on the premise that this was going to be the longest land sailing expedition ever um, which to our knowledge was true at the time so the 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 pressure on us wasn't necessarily a time pressure whilst we we did have a second part to the trip which i'm sure we'll come on to talk about that we needed to, to be there by a certain time but the pressure was more on covering distance so 26 days was the was the target initially um, we ended up being on the on the wikes for about 31 32 days i think in the end
0: okay and do you remember your feelings as you sat there at the start do you do you get, do you remember how you felt when you pushed off
1: i was i was very apprehensive i think i, I think uh, just you feel very alone um i well, i did anyway despite having one of my closest friends there with us uh, we'd already met this huge hurdle Uh, that just for me underpinned how not ready we were for this trip. Uh, (laughs) We couldn't even get us and our kit to the start line. And we're in a relatively hostile environment for English people as well, down in the southern tip of South America. Shawia infamously was the place that the Top Gear presenters got stoned out of uh, when they did their South America trip for various Falklands-related anecdotes. so it was quite a hostile environment, as well as the fact that we had this little hiccup on the way to our start line. Felt very alone, felt pretty nervous about what was what was to come, um, but also just wanted to get going. You know, We'd had six days of, of wasted time, in my opinion, and cycling to the start line. We'd learned a lot from it and got a lot of experiences from that that I look back on fondly. But yeah, it was still nerve-wracking.
0: Yeah, I'm sure it was. All right, so you're off, off and running. And you, you had a target, didn't you? Could you had you the climb that we're going to come to of Mount Aconcagua? Is that how you pronounce it? Aconcagua. Was that always part of the plan?
1: Yes. Yeah. We wanted yeah. I, I'm not really too sure why we wanted to make life harder for ourselves. Um, the focus was the was the white. We actually had another friend come out for the mountain climb who would previously attempted to summit Aconcagua um, and and failed and wanted to wanted to summit it a second time, and that sort of gave us the motivation for the climb. And also, you know, it's the highest mountain in the world outside of the Himalayas at six thousand nine hundred meters. So. You know what a what a feat to be able to put to our our names at the well as well for two completely amateur mountaineers. Well, I suppose uh, I suppose so,
0: Joe. But I mean, I'm I'm sweating a little bit in my very enclosed space here at WeWork. I suspect our listener is also now sweating because we haven't mentioned this before. But in the middle of this the longest land sailing expedition, you decided to climb, and I could got the exact measurement actually. here, Joe, six thousand nine hundred sixty-two meters mountain. In is it in Chile or or Argentina?
1: It's in the Andes, it's so it's on, we, we climbed from the Argentinian side. Yeah.
0: Cool, okay. You decided to slot that into this expedition? Yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to, come to that. we're going to come to that in a second.
1: How far into the journey was that? How many days into it? So we were, we were on the wikes for 32 days, and we only had one day's uh, wiking after the mountain. So we'd done 31 days wiking up to the, up to the mountain.
0: And how physically were you feeling as you, as you arrived at the base of this huge mountain?
1: Well, it was amazing because our our last day on the wikes, when we arrived in Mendoza in Argentina, which was a couple of days prior to starting our trek onto the, onto the mountain and into Aconcagua National Park, was our longest day on the wikes. Whilst I think the 2,657 miles that we covered on the, the wikes breaks down at about an average of 80 three miles a day or something like that in reality we weren't doing 83 miles every day there were constant hiccups on routes that would slow us down mechanical failures a whole variety of things and so we ended up having quite a bit of time to make up for at the back end of the trip um, whilst we didn't have a time pressure as I mentioned, we had provisionally committed to a date that we would start the climb and so we were determined to meet that so I think our final day into Mendoza our biggest day, we ended up covering about 280 kilometers on these bikes um, oh. so about 170, just over 170 miles, starting at 3 o'clock in the morning and arriving probably 9, 9, 9 10 o'clock in the evening <laughs> it was a mega day and um, so uh, mixed mixed emotions when we arrived obviously incredibly ec- ecstatic to have finished a huge chunk of our trip felt a little bit energized as well to have done that and finally be doing something different but then the prospect of then spending about 18 19 days on on a mountain as well something that again was completely new to me I had no mountaineering experience at all was uh yeah just a completely different aspect of the trip to get my head around
0: well, I'm going to come back to that. I'm going to go to that shortly. Just quickly back, the 31 days that you spent. Um, we're gonna post this Facebook video of you guys in about three or four minutes. There's one section where you are cycling across gravel essentially. Yeah. Uh, and it looked absolutely <laughs> bone shaking In fact, I think I've got a quote from you saying something. Here we go. Back shattering, bone breaking, and teeth clattering. <laughs> what? Was that was that the toughest? Was that the toughest section of the 31 days?
1: uh undoubtedly i mean P- P- patagonia is just uh, there are parts of it that are probably the last remaining wilderness on earth um it's just vast it's incredibly windy there isn't a lot there you've got some absolutely stunning parts of it that are like the Lake district times 10 but then you've just got some vast arid uh landscapes as well and so it's not the local authorities' priority to tarmac all of these <laughs> roads. Um, there are some main roads that head down there that are that are uh, sort of incredibly busy and occupied by lorries and and other transport vehicles. But a large proportion of the roads in Patagonia are unpaved. So think of your your you know your your average farm track. Um, and for the bikes that we had, we were using BMX size wheels. These bikes had zero suspension. And sometimes I think we had one or two days. After, there's a question I haven't really covered, which is again, how much impact did the sail on these bikes have? Mm-hmm. Um, and there are maybe one or two days where we were, the wind actually was properly in our favor, at one or two days out of 30. And on those one or two days, we were up, up to speeds of about 64 kilometers an hour. And so on those bikes with those wheels, with no suspension, we were... We were battering the bikes and getting a number of punches. I think my record on one day was about eight punches. Wow! Uh, so yeah, the unpaved road isn't something I'm that keen to to go back and revisit. Whilst I am other parts of the trip, but memories of Patagonia are pretty positive.
0: Generally, I mean, an amazing part of the world.
1: Incredible. I would I would love to to revisit. One of the themes of the trip for me was telling Gareth and I, or reminding Gareth and I to turn around, look backwards. Yeah, um, yeah. Because when you're grinding and getting through those, those miles that I just mentioned each day, it's very easy to become focused on the end goal and you forget to, you forget to turn around and just look at what you're cycling through. Yeah, um, sure. So I've got really fond memories of, of just a, a landscape that was completely new to
0: me. Yeah. So this quick diversion that you decided to slot in, which is 15 or 16 days, walking up nearly 7,000 metres of mountain. Had you done mountain even before? Had you gone up anything similar before? Uh,
1: Mount Snowden. Okay. <laughs> okay. This <was laughs> Is new. that compared? Yeah. Uh, this was very new to me,
0: yeah. And I and know no, 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 you didn't make it. Um, yeah. What, what, just go through the, briefly the experience of, of, of what happened and why you didn't get to the top.
1: So the, I'm not sure I quite appreciated the length of time that we were going to have to be on a mountain for. You know, I, I jokingly referred to Mount Snowdon, but you're up and down Mount Snowdon in half a day if you want to. Our expectation for the mountain climb was an 18-day expedition to enter the National Park and then come back out. Um, we had a guide with us um, from base camp, and she... Uh, a, a very experienced climber. She was the first female to make a winter summit of Aconcagua. So we we're confident we we're in safe hands, despite our our inexperience. Um, we had obviously done the trip on a budget. Um, so whereas a lot of people will get donkeys to carry all of their kit and equipment from entry to the national park up to base camp, um, we were carrying all of our own kit. So um, on entry to the national park, I think we had a very short four-hour climb to get to one of the earlier camps where we did some acclimatization climbs for, for a couple of days before we made the big assault up to base camp. Base camp, I think, is at about 5,400 meters for Aconcagua. So you're already higher than anything in Europe, higher than Mont Blanc. And that was a pretty grueling eight, nine hour climb with 20 to 30 kilograms on our backs and in these huge bergens Um, and that was a that was a really tough day and very hot temperatures and even though you are still quite high up it was really really hot so at base camp we then had a few days to acclimatize Uh, we did some other acclimatization climbs up to about 5,800 meters i think we got up to we dropped some food off at camp one which was um just a it was about two, three hundred meters vertical meters higher than base camp. Came back down for another night's stay at base camp. Woke up the next morning and there was about two foot of snow everywhere at base camp, completely out of season. We we're climbing in a summer season. Um, An Akon Kagura is a is a trekking mountain. So in the summer, in theory, there's no need for. Ice axing and crampons, yeah. um, and this was a this was a game changer for us because in theory from base camp it was then an eight day uh, attempt on the on the summit, and due to the weather that we'd had and some weather coming, uh, we then had to shorten our summit attempt into a two day time slot. So we were up early one morning to make our way up to camp two. So um, going past camp one, picking up some food, making up to uh, our way up to camp two, um, which was another very long day. And because the, the design of eight days up to the summit from base camp was to allow our bodies time to acclimatize. These are altitudes that none of us have ever experienced before. And it it, it takes a lot out of you, breathlessness, the dehydration, the headaches, the stomach upset, and, No sooner had we arrived at Camp 2, at about 10 in the evening, Uh, we were then suddenly bedding down um, in our tent in the snow, uh, ready for a 2, 3 3 a.m. departure the next morning to go to the summit. And we were all up and ready to go. And as we got higher, we got slower um, and slower and slower. And we were climbing our way through knee-deep, thigh-deep snow. And we just weren't making progress quick enough. On top of that, you've got the altitude, uh, how we're feeling in our bodies, um, and we got up to Camp Three, I think, which is the um, the last camp before the summit push. At so just over six thousand meters, I think six thousand one hundred meters, and for me that was that was a bit of a turning point. I was feeling uh, yeah, I was feeling pretty sick at the time. Uh, life on the mountain is brutal for a variety of reasons but you once you're above base camp there are no toilets well I wouldn't even describe what there was at base camp as toilets to to what everyone else knows them but but you're also not allowed to leave you're, you're not allowed to to leave any 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 litter or rubbish or um bodily products um above base camp either so you are doing everything into a bag and then carrying that around with you and i was i was p- feeling pretty sick uh come camp one, and I decided that that was that was my time and i didn't it was very unlikely that we were gonna make it to the top anyway. So yeah, Gareth and Michael, my uh, two, two mates, Michael, who'd come out to join us for the climb, continued on for another couple of hundred vertical metres, and I'd, I'd made my way back down to Camp Air 2, where we were staying again that night, and this this is the part of the trip that I reflect on the most. I was incredibly emotional, I hadn't succeeded at something, my competitive edge from when I was younger, throughout all my sports, it hadn't run true, and I was turning my back on something that had been a huge part of my life for six months and in my mind at the time I'd I, you know I'd failed I, I referred to the, the the charitable causes that we were doing this for and it, it made me pretty emotional I recorded it all on my GoPro at the time so got some good videos to look back on but the edge that that's given me since I think is just helped me to develop so much in terms of building my resilience I think you can be competitive but then you can be competitive with some resilience as well and and, and that moment, walking back down on my own, being completely down in the dumps, has triggered so much else in later life to to want me to go on an adventure more and and keep exploring and being resilient enough to to keep pursuing in those endeavours as well.
0: Well, listen, Joe, that's, that's really interesting reflections. And so you you did the final day into Santiago. Um, how long did you? how did you feel as you arrived in Santiago, and did you stay there for very long?
1: We did. We had a few days in Santiago afterwards before we we flew home. It was uh it was funny because it was just one day's cycling, you know, we'd got thirty-one days cycling under our belts prior to the mountain and this was just an easy, straightforward one day into Santiago. And it all went very smoothly until we, we got into the outskirts of the city, um and the only routes into the city were on dual carriageways or motorways and we got pulled over, and we had to be escorted into the city on our bikes. Um, again, another one of those aspects that you just don't think about, and so we were we were overwhelmed with emotion. I think when we finished, uh, there was still that that underlying emotion of the the mountain climb that was sort of niggling at us a little bit. Um, but over the coming days, we sort of came to terms with with what we'd done, the adventure that we'd been on, and um, you know. The, the amount of money we'd, we'd raised for some very worthy causes as well. Not just the money side of things, but the awareness was as much uh, important to us as the money, I think. So. Yeah, well,
0: well, we'll make a reference to both of those charities within the, um, the, the supporting information to this podcast. So, you. And, you, and you've been back to Chile since wearing your MCC hat. Yeah, that's
1: true. Yeah, so I, I had the opportunity to go back at the start of last year um on a, a cricket tour with the MCC who I've toured with before looking to develop the game of cricket or oh, well, the the general mission statement for the MCC is is developing cricket at a grassroots level um, and that includes overseas as well so touring nations where crickets a developing sports um which it is in in Chile and Brazil and so we were able to go back there in, in March of last year and uh, play at some of the sites that we, you know I'd, I'd Become familiar with in my time in Santiago. You see some old faces of people that support us on the ground there. Yeah, great. Uh, yeah, it was great. Amazing.
0: Well, Bury in England's performance against Ireland at the moment this week. We might need to bring <laughs> Brazil and Chile in for a test match. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and and any, I mean, this is all two three years ago, wasn't it? In terms of your trip, any adventures in the pipeline?
1: No, it's, it's a really good question. I'd love, I've, I would love to go back to Aconcagua and and do that again. And now that I'm a a working man, as opposed to someone um, sort of in between university and a full time job, that becomes harder because, as I said, it it does sort of take two to three weeks to, to, to do that properly. So in the short term, no adventures. I'm trying my hand at other endurance sports like some longer distance triathlon. And things like that, which are all, in my mind, all tiny little things that just help to build that sort of resilient edge that will hopefully stand me in better stead and I Africa next time I attack.
0: Well, I've got a, I've got a tip for you, Joe. Subscribe to Wildbase. it'll be the source of all future adventures.
1: Well, there you go.
0: Yeah, yeah. Listen, thank you so much for joining. us an amazing story, and uh, I hope it's inspiring other people to do something similar. Uh, thanks, Joe. Thanks very much, Andrew. Cheers. Thanks so much, Joe, for tales of your Panandean adventure and letting us into the personal and the emotional. It's, for me anyway, it's that personal element that I find makes some of these stories and journeys just so compelling. On the Base website, you will find more information about the trip, including the charities that are involved, and also a link to their Facebook page uh, about the trip with a really great video that shows some of the pleasure and I have to say some of the pain that was involved, thank you for listening. Please do send in any comments, questions, suggestions for future podcasts. We cannot just rely on Chris Miller He's, I forgot to mention, he's one of those guys, flowers one day and then nothing. So we're keen to hear from anyone who has done something just a little bit different. Also, event organizers, if you've got an amazing event or you're associated with one that you would like us to talk about, then get in touch. And uh, we'll happily talk, we'll have it listed on the Wildbase website, whatever works best for you. And finally, please subscribe and support our fledgling podcast. Producer Tom will be at work with his magic podcast fingers, it's circulating us all over the place. So please subscribe, tell your friends, tell your granny, and last but not least, get some adventure into your life. Until next time, this has been Salmon Swim Upstream.